take a moment to pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, you know the importance of uh, every sermon preached from a pulpit in your name. Protect us now from competing voices, from anything or anyone that would exalt itself above the knowledge of you. Protect us, Father, from being deceived, distracted, or discouraged today. Protect us. Father, protect us from error. Protect us from pride. Help me to speak only your words and not my own. That you might be glorified and that your church might be built up. These things we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Today's message was supposed to come a little later in the series, um, but based on where things are right now in our nation, in our community, it seemed like an appropriate and important time for us to uh, sort of advance this to the position of this week. Sometimes life's just hard. Sometimes things get broken. And when they get broken, they can't get fixed. I know we like to say that, you know, God can fix everything. And, and yes, of course, He's God. He created everything out of nothing. So there's nothing too great for God, but He does not tend to choose to repair what He has deemed irreparable consequences of choices remain. When a person is murdered, regardless of the situation, no conviction that puts the offender in prison can ever bring that person back. It can't be fixed. No prison sentence can afford justice. God has his prescription for justice, and ultimately, everyone faces justice or grace. We either find grace in Christ, and we are made God's child instead of his enemy, at which point, we don't face his ultimate wrath, but we do still face the consequences of our choices in this life. My choices determine my destiny. There is no getting away from that. When you throw a pebble in a pond, there is a ripple. There always will be. When we sow to the wind, we reap the whirlwind. We live in a divided time. I can tell you right now that there is no way that I can cover everything that I want to cover today. I will pray earnestly that the things that need to get said today will be said, and the things that need to get said later God will bring about in his time through the preaching of his word. I have to start, I guess, probably by... By drawing your attention 
to the 2000 20th Century Fox movie, The X-Men. Now, I know not all of you are comic book fans or movie fans or comic book movie fans. But the X-Men is a, uh, is a movie based on a comic book series about mutant superheroes who are really kids initially in a school for the gifted, for these people with mutant superpowers. And probably the most popular character in the X-Men is, who knows, Wolverine, of course played by the inimitable Australian multi-talented actor Hugh Jackman in the movies, which made his career. In this initial movie, Wolverine, who is sort of an anti-hero, he's, he's got some rage issues. But he also has metal claws that extend out of his hand. They pierce out through his flesh, and at one point, in the movie, a young protege asks him as she looks astonishingly at his hands and says, does it hurt? To which Wolverine responds, every time. I have to tell you, Every time God makes me stand behind the pulpit, every time he makes me bring out the claws of his word to pierce through our hardness, it hurts me. If ever, I'm not exactly what you would call a fiery preacher perhaps, but if ever you perceive a fire or even a spark in this pulpit, <laughs> rest assured, it's only the residual embers after the fire of God's conviction has already burned down my walls. An old pastor friend of, of ours back when we lived in Maryland <laughs> Nobody, nobody can preach like a good old boy from Mississippi, I guess, but Pastor Garrett used to always say, and many of you have heard this statement before, every time I'm pointing a finger at you, I've got three more pointing back at me. I think that's never more true than whenever a preacher stands to declare God's word, and I say with passion and certainty that we need more proclamation and less opinion. More thus saith the Lord and less of I think. And even in thus saith the Lord, I think we often confuse that. I don't mean that in a prophetic sense that God has laid this burden upon my heart. I think that can be one of the most dangerous and deceptive things a preacher can ever do. But more it is written. Today, I want to talk about what we do when things go wrong. And as I mentioned, we live in a divided time. We live in a time when you can't watch the news and trust anybody. 
because everybody is pushing their own agenda. It doesn't matter what particular news network or, or media outlet, newspaper you follow, they all have tipped their hand to be biased. Now that's natural, so we shouldn't be too angry about it because every one of us is always biased. None of us is perfectly objective, so we should stop pretending. But we need to be honest about those biases. We can't have dialogue in our society today because the moment I disagree with you, that is perceived as hate, which often leads to defensiveness, which brews more hate. And then it steeps in its own juices until that hate foments into some boiling cauldron of demonic influence. Now, we don't talk about demonic influence very often unless it's in some, some you know, exorcist kind of, of way. But we've got to realize that our attitudes are the primary demonic influence in the world. It's not the haunting of a house or some other thing that gets on television shows from people who don't know God at all. But it's the devil whispering in your ear. First off, trying to get you to believe he doesn't exist. Then trying to get you to follow him. And trying to scare you and intimidate you. And most often, to discourage and deceive. Very often, we justify our, our bad behavior. We justify our bad reactions by saying, well, this is, this is just, this is right. I have a right to feel this way. Sometimes we even spin it as standing up and defending truth and justice and the American way, another comic book reference. But. Each one of us here has or will feel hurt by injustice, sickened by the sin in the world as we look around us, devastated by bad news when the doctor calls and says, it's cancer, it's COVID. Your mother has a blood clot. Your sister had a stroke. The car crashed, the plane went down. We get hit by bad news. And it upends us. We either have or will feel persecuted, perhaps for our faith, perhaps for other reasons, or picked on, or abandoned, neglected. Even right now you may be grieving or lonely. Perhaps you can identify with being betrayed by a friend. <laughs> Perhaps you've buried your mate. Perhaps you've buried your child. 
There's no fixing that. And yet the grief of death is entirely different from the grief of betrayal. A divorce is often more painful than a death. Perhaps you've been caught in your own sin and you're overwhelmed by the shame of it and you're not sure how to go forward. You find yourself disappointed in life, perhaps even disappointed in God because He didn't answer the prayers the way you thought He should. Maybe you've been taken advantage of you're dealing with anger and bitterness, or you're upset about various outcomes in life. These are realities that are inevitable. If you think you can escape them, you are mistaken. No one gets out clean. <laughs> I think it was Jim Morrison that said, no one here gets out alive. My struggle as a person is the struggle we all face. What am I supposed to do when things get broken? When my child has really messed up and it leaves a permanent, a permanent consequence that I can't fix for them. What am I supposed to do when I have brought shame on myself and I can't justify it and I can't hide it? What am I supposed to do when I have been so deeply wronged that it feels like I can never forgive? Or maybe even harder, when my loved one has been wronged. What am I supposed to do with that? This is where the rubber meets the road when we talk about living a life worthy of the calling we've received. It's easy to look like a Christian when everything is going your way, isn't it? Isn't it easy and joyful when we get together and we sing wonderful songs? Is there a better time to go to church than Easter Sunday or Christmas Eve? And all the emotions are there and it's warm and it's nostalgic and it's celebratory. But how hard is it when you have to go to church to pray because your pastor or one of your elders has fallen into sin and you have to deal with that. Some of you know what that's like. You've been in those situations. There was a church not too far from here, a few years back, that had to deal with a staff pastor who fell into sexual sin and scandal, destroyed his marriage, destroyed his ministry, and it came up on Mother's Day. And I had to deal with that. I gotta tell you, I don't think that was a very fun church service. Our core reality as we walk through this today is pretty simple. 
It's not really catchy, but hopefully we understand it. When my understanding of reality is rooted in Christ, my response to pain and difficulty reflects that reality. I'm going to say that again in just a moment, but I want to draw your attention before I do to Ephesians 4.1. We looked at this previously, we'll look at it again. This is the theme for the rest of the book of Ephesians. As a prisoner for the Lord then, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Not to, not to earn it, not to earn a relationship with God, that's never going to happen you might as well give up because you cannot fix that. Only Christ does. It's only grace. We're only saved by grace, undeserved. Every single one of us receives grace undeserved or we don't receive grace because that's the definition of grace. It's always undeserved. Just like forgiveness is always undeserved. If you deserved it, there would be nothing to forgive. We get these beautiful relationships with Christ only by God's grace. Only because He loved us so much that while we were His enemies and far from Him, not even looking for Him, He sent His Son Jesus to die in our place so that we can receive it. What, what a hard job it is, right? To just receive it. Here, I'm giving you a gift. What, what do I have to do? Take it, receive it, accept it. But now that we have received new life in Christ, that we have been made children of God, live a life that fits that calling. I want to tell you, I'm not preaching today to those who do not know Jesus Christ. So if you are not 100% certain that you are in a relationship with him because you have placed all your hope in the death and resurrection of Christ, this isn't really for you. You're, you're welcome to listen in, and hopefully it'll, it'll help you learn some things. But I'm preaching to those who claim to be Christ followers. Core reality, when my understanding of reality is rooted in Christ, my response to pain and difficult, difficulty reflects that reality. Uh, we have... Obviously, here locally, we have had a, a difficult week with um, obvious issues that, that don't need to be brought up in detail from the pulpit. But what troubles me more than the situation itself is the response I see so often from those who claim to know the grace of God and are so quick, so quick to withhold that grace from others. Every time I say that, I have to look in the mirror. We, as Christ followers, will be mistreated. Sometimes because we follow Christ, and sometimes just because we're people in the world, and everybody gets mistreated. The difference between those who know Him and those who don't is whether we respond according to the Spirit or according to the flesh. The flesh is natural. Of course, it just comes out. When I get angry, I lash out. When I make my arguments, I defend my position. I fight to prove that I'm right. 
Listen, I'm not telling you not to stand up for truth. I'm the last person going to tell you that because that's not what this book says. We fight for truth. But we don't fight like the world fights. The weapons of our warfare are different. We'll get to that in another sermon. Today, we need to recognize that when my understanding of reality is rooted in Christ, my response to pain and difficulty reflects that reality. Children of God don't respond to pain and difficulty the way the world does. We've had some songs today that, that were intended to draw our attention to this reality, to recognize the greatness of our God, to God be all the glory, great things He has done. He loved the world so much that He gave His only Son for a wretched sinner like me and you. When we get that, when we, when we begin to get a, just the slightest glimpse of the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, there is no logical response that puts anything but contempt on my pride. Jesus died because I should have. And so should you. And if you don't know him, if you have not received his grace, then you will. And the only reason any of us don't, any dirtbag like me doesn't die, is because of Jesus. Unmerited favor. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, for the glory of God alone. When I get that, there's no place left for me to hang on to my rightness. There's no place in the child of God for vengeance, for payback, for spite. All right, I'm getting a little bit too much of me, and I want to get back into the Word here. So uh, let's, real quick, take, take a little spin through the book of Proverbs. We're just going to look at a, a few selections here. Start with Proverbs chapter 10. If you go to the middle of your Bible, you probably find the Psalms right there. Right after that, you find the book of Proverbs. There's so many things for us to look at here. Just a little sampling we're going to take a look at. When we are trying to deal with these things, we have, we have attitudes to deal with, we have behaviors to deal with. I think more than anything else, we've got our own mouths to deal with. And, and uh, I would include in that our social media and, and so on and so forth. Proverbs 10, verse 12, Hatred stirs up conflict but love covers over all wrongs. Wisdom is found on the lips of the discerning, but a rod is for the back of one who has no sense. The wise store up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool invites ruin. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. The wages of the righteous life, the, the, the wages of the righteous is life. But the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. Whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction 
leads others astray. Whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. One of my favorites, and when I say favorites, I mean one of the most painful for me. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. Another translation says where words are many, sin is not absent. So be sensible and keep your mouth shut. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of sense. Flip the page to chapter 12. Solomon writes in verse 18, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Look a little farther to 13, verse 3. Those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin. This is God saying, get a filter. A little quicker in the mind, a little slower in the mouth. Those who guard their lips preserve their lives. Those who speak rashly will come to ruin. Turn again to chapter 15, starting with verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. Don't miss out on verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Skip a couple of chapters and go to chapter 21. 21 verse 23. Those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. Chapter 25 25, verse 11. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a ruling rightly given. Another translation renders that a word fitly spoken. Listen, our tongues have power, don't they? We can speak life or we can speak death. We can build up or we can tear down. We can curse or we can bless. Turn to James, if you would. We're going from the middle of your Bible way to the back. If you go to Revelation, you went too far, but we're getting in that neighborhood. Find the book of James. It's not a big book, but it's a heavy one. James is a very practical book. I'm going to come back to part of it, but I want to start with James chapter 1, verse 19 and following. 
James 1, 19 and 20 are our memory verses, our memory passage for today. I don't love the rendering in the, in the new, newer edition of the NIV. If you have an older edition, good job. That's better. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Let that sink in for just a moment. We often will justify our hot emotions by calling it righteous indignation. You've heard that term, right? How many of you have used that? How many of you have used that when it was really your own sinful anger and you were just trying to label it in a spiritual way? right? I'm going to blame God for my anger, and I'm going to justify it. Let this passage sink into your mind and heart so that it eventually lands on your ears and tongue. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. It doesn't say that you shouldn't speak, and it doesn't say you shouldn't become angry, but slow your roll. Pump the brakes. That should not be where we go unless there is no other place to go. As we are guided by wisdom, the Holy Spirit, and God's Word, otherwise, stay away from anger. You're going to feel anger. You don't have a lot of control over what you feel. You have all the control over what you think. So when that anger comes up, I need to remember that the Lord says through James that I'm supposed to be quick to listen. In other words, to hear the other person's perspective. To be able to listen to things that I don't agree with. To be able to listen to things that don't make sense to me. I need to listen. And I need to be slow, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Why? Because human anger, even what I like to label my righteous indignation, doesn't bring about the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, he says, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Don't merely listen to the word and, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. We call that a knucklehead. Knucklehead. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Do you think it's an accident that God puts this directly after be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? You've heard it. The question is, will you do it? I have to ask myself that question all the time. You know the word, Zyger. Are you going to put up or shut up? Maybe you need to put up by shutting up. 
Turn to chapter 3 of the book of James. Starting with verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Somebody say amen to that. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. That word perfect doesn't mean completely without sin, but complete and whole, everything that is required. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, tiny little bit, big old animal, and we can control them. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. In other words, it's very powerful. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. We all recognize that, right? That's why it's an unwise thing to flick a cigarette out a window when you're driving through Yellowstone, right? It's a bad thing. Don't smoke anyway, it's a bad idea, but you get the idea. A tiny spark. Be careful when you put out that campfire, because if it's still got some embers in there, you, bad things can happen, man. Soak that sucker. Get it out. Maybe we need to take that approach to our mouths. Soak that sucker. Put it out. I'll pay for that later, I'm sure. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Verse 6, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. You think James got some strong words about our mouths? The things that we say? All kinds of animals, verse 7, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. But no human being can tame the tongue. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. If we're going to tame the tongue, that requires our Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. Not my spirit, but God placed in me because of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Apart from the Holy Spirit inside, I'm not going to be effective in taming my tongue. Notice this, verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, as we should. We're doing that today, right? We stand and we sing and we pray and we say, wonderful and glorious things and we we recite truths about who god is what he is like and what he has called us to i stand in front of you and i preach god's word and yet and yet he says with it we curse human beings who have been made in god's likeness same mouth Praises God, curses others. Unless you be too literal in your understanding of curse, that same tongue that speaks well of God speaks ill of those God created to bear His image. 
Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grape, uh, grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. As we are learning to process what it means to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received, let's contemplate for a moment that the things that come out of our mouths should reflect the things that come out of the mouth of Christ. So much more to say. I'm going to have to skip forward because I'm, I'm already well, well past where I want to be. So um, let's, let's take a look at what you've got here in your, in your program. We'll fill in some blanks and uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to stay connected to it. It matters how I respond. It matters how I respond because I have been changed. If I am a Christ follower, I am not a religious person. I cannot say this loudly or clearly enough. Religion is fine in itself, but what it is, just like the unbelievers say, is a psychological and somewhat spiritual tool to bind back, that's the nature of the word, to bind back behaviors, and it makes society better, and it does produce better people in a sense in their behavior modification, but that is not what we're talking about. That is not Christianity. Christianity is embracing the reality that Jesus Christ is the center of everything. It is a personal relationship with Him, not in the sense that he is this, this guy that's out there that, that we talk about and we worship, but we recognize that Jesus is real, that God himself is real, eternally existing in three co-equal persons. Tough to understand? Yeah, ask him when you get there, okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, separate jobs, separate roles, but not just that. And we recognize as Christ followers that we're not pursuing some perfection by climbing the steps of a cathedral, by doing spiritual acts like baptism and communion, by following the instruction of a preacher, cleaning up our life and giving money to good causes and all of those things, but that the opposite of religion has taken place. In religion, we work to become more like God, to get to, to get to God, to gain His favor. The reality of life is that that gets us nowhere, but God came down to us. I can't get to Him, so He came to me. It's all God. In, in, in grasping that, it changes everything. So here's what I need to recognize. There's a cause and effect in my, in my response to pain and difficulty if I am going to reflect the reality of Christ in everything that I experience. First, because I'm a child of God in Christ, I reflect my Father's character. 
Because I'm a child of God in Christ, I reflect my father's character. There, this is about having a family resemblance. We see in Ephesians chapter 1, as we saw a number of weeks ago, that we have been chosen in Christ to be adopted as sons and daughters in the full rights and privileges of the only begotten Son. That's a powerful thing. Everything that is spiritually true of Christ is spiritually true of those who are in Christ, united to Christ. Which also means that we need to follow in His steps. We need to reflect Daddy. My actions represent my family. My response to bad things, whatever those bad things might be, must fit who I am in Christ by matching the character of God. Again, my actions represent my family. Because I'm a child of God in Christ, I reflect my Father's character. Next, notice this. Because all Christ's followers are united in Christ, I give special priority to my relationships with other believers. Because all Christ followers are united in Christ, I give special priority to my relationships with other believers. We don't have time to, to go through a whole bunch of scriptures here because there are some others that I still want us to see and we're, we're cruising along here. But recognize that there is a difference between all y'all and my own. I have children, I love your kids, but my kids are my kids. There's a difference in that relationship. It doesn't mean that I love your kids less, it means that there's a unique priority on my own. You are all my brothers and sisters in Christ. I have a unique priority on the relationship I have with you over the relationship I have with the rest of the world. That's what we've been called to. And if you've been following us through Ephesians, we see that the church is the center of this message. That God, in bringing all things together under His kingdom rule in Christ, manifests Himself in the church. Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, Republican and Democrat. Yeah, they both get in, actually. So, you know, Bear fans, Packers fans, you name it. If you're in Christ, you are one. You are living stones being built into a spiritual house. Not bricks. You are oddly shaped stones, right? We need to recognize that. I am an oddly shaped stone by God's design. And he uses those unique aspects of who we are that he put into us to build his church, one church. And it is in the church that he receives glory. So, if that's the case, and we're looking at a family where we are built together into one building, I have to put a priority on my brothers and sisters. I love the world, but I love my family uniquely. God loves the world so much that He gave His one and only Son, but He has a special, unique kind of love for His elect. We need to recognize that. Family first. We're going to spend eternity together. We better get it figured out now. 
while I seek to live at peace with everyone for the glory of God. As a member of God's family, there's a special weight to my relationships with my brothers and sisters. The blood of Christ that unites us is greater than anything that would divide us. Let me read that again. The blood of Christ that unites us is greater than anything that would divide us. Because all Christ followers are united in Christ, I give special priority to my relationships with other believers. Next, notice this. Because I have been saved by grace alone, I extend grace to others. Because I have been saved by grace alone, I extend grace to others. This has to do with humility. My sins cause me to identify with the offender. Not the offended, the offender. I have to recognize when we see that thief on the cross next to Jesus, that's me. He says, you and I, he says to the, the other thief that's mocking Jesus, don't you get it? We're here because we deserve to be here. He hasn't done anything wrong. You and I can often get offended, and we can identify with those who are offended in the flesh. That's natural. But my sin, when I recognize my sinfulness, I need to recognize that I am more closely associated with the one who has done wrong than the one who has been wronged. Every time that I have been wronged by you, by anyone, I need to recognize that my rebellion, my betrayal, my adultery against God is greater than anyone's betrayal of me. God's perfect. I'm a sinner. One sinner sinning against another sinner? Okay, that's not that shocking. But I sinned against the holy God who gave me life. And even now, I keep doing it. Wretched man that I am. Praise be to God. Thankful that there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because I've been saved by grace alone, I extend grace to others. My sins cause me to identify with the offender. If I fail to demonstrate grace to those who have wronged me, I know nothing of the amazing grace that saves a wretch like me. A true understanding of the cross of Christ causes me to pour contempt on all my pride and cast my bitterness into mercy's sea. Because I have been saved by grace alone, I extend grace to others. Next, because God reconciled me to himself in Christ, I am a minister of reconciliation. Because God reconciled me to himself in Christ, I am a minister of reconciliation. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're in James or even if you're still in Ephesians, you're going to turn back to the left right after the book of Romans, we see the letters to the Corinthian church. We're looking at the second one, and we're going to find chapter 5. Notice how the preacher stalls as he looks it up himself. When you find chapter 5, we're going to start with verse 11. 
Because God reconciled me to himself in Christ, I am a minister of reconciliation. Notice Paul writes, starting in verse 11, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. He's speaking on behalf of those who are serving the Lord and preaching. So that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. Now, have you ever had somebody say that your reaction, when you try to turn the other cheek, they make you feel like that's just stupid, right? And they'll come up with lots of other reasons why that's the wrong thing. I told myself I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on this particular point, so I, I left it out of your outline. But I just want us to recognize that when we look at what Jesus did and what Jesus taught, he didn't put it there as a suggestion so that we can sculpt it and shape it to fit some humanist version of Christianity. We are not supposed to do things that make sense to the world. We are supposed to do things that reflect who we are in Christ. And when Jesus went to the cross... He was silent, like a sheep before the shearer. Check out 1 Peter 2, 3 sometime. Not right now. I'm going to do that for your homework. Continuing in 2, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians. If we're out of our mind, verse 13, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, if we're doing things that, that, that make sense, that seem logical, it, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now keep this in mind, right? We had this as a memory verse not long ago. Keep this in mind as we read through the rest of this and come back to our point. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Let me read that verse again. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. No part of us, no good deed doing, no, no boy, you, it was really good that you were spiritual and holy enough to be able to see this stuff and turn to God. No, God did this. He did all of it, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you. We implore you, Christ follower, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Because God reconciled me to himself in Christ, I am a minister of reconciliation. This is about responsibility. I've been saved to serve others. I'm a citizen of heaven, but he's left me here with an assignment as an ambassador. Everything I do is for him. It has to be. It's the only thing that makes sense. If he died for me, doesn't making my own life a, a living sacrifice for him seem like the only true and proper form of worship? We've been reconciled to live as reconcilers. Because God reconciled me to himself in Christ, I am a minister of reconciliation. And then this. Because I have been forgiven an unpayable debt, I forgive others freely. Because I have been forgiven an unpayable debt, I forgive others freely. This is about gratitude. I'm not going to say much about this, but I would like us to read from Matthew 18. So please turn there. Again, we're moving back to the left, if you're not sure where that is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels are all right in a row. If you get to names that seem funny sounding or like one of the Graham kids, then you probably are in the Old Testament. Matthew, chapter 18. We're going to start with verse 21 through the end of the chapter. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? You may have heard this one before. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Man, we could just preach that for the whole sermon right there. Probably take a couple of weeks on it. But it doesn't end there. Notice it flows right into the next piece here. Same conversation. Jesus said, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. God's the king, right? He wants to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, the, the picture here is of an unpayable debt. He owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, duh, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. I want to go slowly so this all sinks in. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Is he going to pay back everything? Come on, man. 10,000 bags of gold? What kind of job you got? That, that ain't no $15 an hour wage. Be patient with me. He pleads for mercy. I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants because, don't you know, he's trying to pay back the debt. Sometimes we miss this. Because he wants to add to the grace he has received, the mercy that he has encountered, he wants to pay back the debt that has already been forgiven. When the king says your debt is forgiven, there's nothing left to pay back. 
But because he's so fixated on he has to own up to his responsibility, he's got to pull himself up by his bootstraps, he goes out and finds somebody that owes him. Hmm. Mercy, mercy, he cries. 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. 10,000 bags of gold, a hundred silver coins. Not comparable. It's a picture of my sin against God versus someone else's sins against me. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Sounds familiar. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Verse 35 is the hammer. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is about gratitude. Because I have been forgiven an unpayable debt, I forgive others freely. Moving on. Because Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth, I speak hard truth in a loving way from a loving heart. Because Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth, if you're not sure about that, read John 1, verses 1 through 18. Because Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth, I speak hard truth in a loving way from a loving heart. Let's go back to Ephesians real quick. What does it say in verse 15 of chapter 4? This is part of maturity, by the way. This comes in the context of Paul talking about God giving gifts to the church for the building up of the church. And he specifically mentions some teaching and proclamation gifts that are for the instruction and the edification of the body of Christ so that we become mature. We grow in our doctrine. We grow in our relationship with Christ. We grow closer to one another because of that maturity. And in verse 15, he contrasts this attitude, this response to difficulty, to being wronged, to feeling disappointed or angry. He contrasts this with verse 14. So I'm going to read verse 14, but our point is verse 15. When we become mature, when we reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, he says in verse 14, then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, truth in love, 
we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Because Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth, I speak hard truth. I can't love someone without truth. I speak hard truth in a loving way, in other words, with kind words, with a gentle manner. I'm not, I'm not out here swinging some big old sword or beating you over the head with a big old black Bible. Nothing wrong with the black Bible. Something wrong with beating people with it. I do it in a kind and loving way. And I do it from a kind and loving motive. The motive of compassion. Recognizing that I'm an ambassador. I'm here having been reconciled to Christ through no merit of my own, but only by His grace so that I can reconcile others. So that I can be an ambassador so everyone can see what He is like. I want to represent my family well. I want to represent the God who has chosen me, despite me, to be His. This has to do with balance and wholeness. I don't fail to speak truth. It is unloving to neglect truth. Truth without love is abuse, but I cannot love without truth. Real truth places God above all else. My heart is... And my manner must love my neighbor as myself. That's the first two commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth, I speak hard truth in a loving way from a loving heart. We really are getting to the end. Because God has a purpose in my pain, I rejoice in suffering. Because God has a purpose in my pain, I rejoice in suffering. You're intelligent people, you can look these things up for yourself. I'm not going to have you turn there right now. But Romans 5 talks about the fact that that God has has given us this incredible grace of Christ dying for us. And because of the glory He has in store for us as His children, we were His enemies, While we were his enemies, he sent Christ to die for us. How much more now that we are his children is he watching over us? Does he have good things in store for us? Even if it doesn't look the way you expect it to. But he says, we don't just glory in these things. We glory even in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Because the suffering produces perseverance. And that perseverance is going to do something. It's going to build our character. And ultimately, as it builds our character, it develops hope in us that doesn't disappoint us because He's given us His Spirit. James 1, I'm not going to have you turn back there for the sake of time, but I mentioned that was where we were going to go back to. James 1, verses 2 and following, it says, man, consider it pure joy. Now, let me just stop. I just want to recognize, acknowledge, when the doctor tells you you got cancer, that's not pure joy in itself. When you can't do the things you used to do, when your loved one dies, when your mate betrays you and leaves you, 
when the friend that you counted on stabs you in the back. When you have failed and sinned and you're so ashamed you can't show your face, none of that is joy in itself. He says, wrap your mind around it. Reckon it so. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you can become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And if you lack wisdom, anybody who lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Because he gives his wisdom liberally without finding fault. He doesn't say, I'm going to hold back my wisdom from you. Because, you know, you didn't really do so hot this week. No, he wants you to see and know truth. And he wants to give you this wisdom. Jeremiah 29, we often quote Jeremiah 29, 11 about God's plan for us to prosper us and not to harm us. But don't miss out on the fact that that verse is actually explaining the surrounding verses where God says you're going into exile in Babylon for 70 years and you're going to suffer. In fact, that suffering becomes so, so great that parents turn to cannibalism of their own children. If you want to throw up in your mouth right now, that's okay. You should. In the middle of that, God says, when this is done, when I've finished what I'm doing in sending you into exile, in misery you cannot fathom, when I'm done with that, in my set amount of time, when you have suffered as I have appointed you, I'll bring you back. Because I know the plans I have for you. And it seems bad, but the plans I have for you are for your good, ultimately. It doesn't seem good right now, does it? But my plans are good. And when I bring you back, you will seek me and find me, and you'll seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you. God has a purpose in my pain. Therefore, I rejoice in suffering. This is a matter of faith. It's trusting God to be God, regardless of how it feels or whether I get it. Whether we're talking about Daniel or, or Joseph or Job, the attitude of all was the same as Job's word, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Depending on your translation, your rendering, it may say, yet will I trust him, yet will I hope in him, yet will I praise him. The idea does not change. God is God, and I am not. Lord, thy will be done. I don't like it. If there's any way for it to be different than this, then Father, please, as Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from me. But it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. God has a purpose. Because God has a purpose in my pain, I rejoice in suffering. Trust God. Not just what I see or understand. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Last point. Because my life is my best witness, I will live so that others see Jesus through me. Because my life is my best witness, I will live so that others see Jesus 
through me. This has to do with opportunity. The Jesus they see is the Jesus in me. Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16 talks about us being salt and light in the world. Talks about us being like a city. Speaking of those who belong to Him, the church, we are like a city set on a hill. And the light shines in the darkness. It's not hidden. And He says, let your light shine. As an individual, let your light shine so that when others see your good works, they pat you on the back and notice what a fine and respectable person you are. That's not what it says. Let your light shine so that when people see your good works, they glorify your Father in heaven. It's an opportunity. How we respond to hardship is an opportunity to be able to show people who Jesus is, what He is like, and draw them to Him. Titus chapter 2, verse 8. <laughs> Let me read verse 7. It's the beginning of the sentence. In everything, Titus, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. I'm going to skip the rest. You can read it for yourself. Jump to chapter 3, verse 16. Hmm. 15 begins the sentence. I'll start there. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. He goes on to say, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So much more to say. Let me close this point out with this, and then I'll wrap up and we'll pray. Because my life is my best witness, I will live so that others see Jesus through me. It's an anonymous poem that many of you have probably heard. If not, I hope you take it to heart. I am my neighbor's Bible. <clears throat> I am my neighbor's Bible. He reads me when we meet. Today he reads me in my home, tomorrow in the street. He may be relative or friend or slight acquaintance be. He may not even know my name, yet he's reading me. And pray, who is this neighbor who reads me day by day to learn if I am living right and walking as I pray? Oh, he is with me always. 
to criticize or blame. So worldly wise in his own eyes and sinner in his name. Dear Christian friends and brothers, if we could only know how faithful the world records just what we say and do. Oh, we would write our record plain and come in time to see our worldly neighbor one to Christ while reading you and me. Because my life is my best witness, I will live so that others see Jesus through me. As we end today, let me remind you of our core reality. When my understanding of reality is rooted in Christ, my response to pain and difficulty reflects that reality. If I don't take this seriously, I don't take God seriously. I place myself among those to whom Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. This is not optional. When I take God seriously and have become new in Christ, I want to be like Jesus in every way. It's not a matter of religion, but of reality. The reality of Christ in me causing me to reflect His reality through relationships. Let's pray. Father, we want to be like You. We are not good at it. In our flesh it cannot be done, and yet we know that nothing is impossible for You. So by Your Spirit living in us, Lord, Remind us that we were, that we were dead in sin. But because of your great love for us, you have made us alive in Christ. Now help us to walk in a newness of life. To live a life worthy of the calling we have received. Maybe especially in our response to pain and difficulty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.